0: I'd like to speak this evening with regard to. We could perhaps say what it is that we are invited to wake up to in this practice, in this path. And I think there's something interesting in turning towards this territory in that we cannot adequately encompass what is most fundamentally true in any single position, perspective or statement of what it is that we're seeking to understand. And yet sometimes by exploring together different ways of, we could say, entry or engagement with, the fundamental questions of our experience the fundamental areas of interest in the journey of awakening we can come to a a more full a more complete understanding and perspective on our path on our journey so one way we can talk about or look at what it is we're seeking to discover, or we're invited to discover, is in terms of the we could say relational world of things that we inhabit, that we experience. And another way we can look at or explore this is in terms of the very nature of experience itself. And I'd like to just spend a little time to reflect from these two different directions. A little. In terms of the relational world, the world of things, of engagement, of beings such as ourselves and things such as everything else. That's a reasonably wide topic. <laughs> the fundamental reflection or exploration that we're invited to consider, and we've touched on this in one or two ways already, is the, the habitual orientation we find ourselves often established in and often unquestioningly, that we are somehow separate from, different to, other than, and apart from, all of that in which we find ourselves. And to reflect, to consider, whether in fact it is true. It is so. It is borne out by our experience. For myself, it's been a, a central area of reflection, of consideration, to really see what does it mean to be a part of this world. When we can so easily imagine ourselves and experience ourselves, and I certainly at times have myself, felt a sense of being apart from it. And what does it mean to be a part of it? Something very different. I spoke, uh, I think, a couple of nights ago, or three, I can't remember now, about a, a deep sort of question in my heart when I was young around how the world was the way it was and not really being able to make sense of it. And in that, a feeling of being very different, a feeling of being somehow almost alien in the world, that it didn't quite make sense to me and how most of what was around me seemed to be happening I just couldn't resonate with it, particularly, I think I mentioned in terms of the the suffering and the the way people seem blind to the impact of their actions so often. In my confusion and distress, I one, one weekend decided just to go away from where I was and just go somewhere else. And I didn't really know where else I should go, but where I ended up was... I guess a couple of hours' drive from where I was living at the time in Auckland, the largest city in New Zealand, and I was in a little uh, area, of, well, reasonably large actually in this, for this country, but New Zealand, a relatively small area of woods and forest, um, in what's called the Coromando, and I, I found a place where I could just sleep out, and I just somehow felt myself called and drawn to go and sleep outside to be outside in the natural environment and I I found a very fortunately and completely really by accident a a grove of vast trees New Zealand kauri which is one of the longest lived and largest things that lives or arrives on this earth in any form it's a The trees are quite wonderful. The eldest tree that was ever discovered was four and a half thousand years old. Um, Although, rather sadly, they discovered that after cutting it down. Uh, That was very early in New Zealand's history, before perhaps the wisdom of not having cut it down first might have occurred to people. But nonetheless, I spent a night amongst these trees, four or five of them and there was something very powerful that happened for me just sleeping on the earth amongst the trees and feeling the the presence of the the trees we could say the life of the trees the beingness of the trees you know when we do standing meditation outside i sometimes think of the trees i don't know if you ever have that sense of what it's like just to stand there come wind and rain and shine and Day and night, and just be there in that way. And there's a way in which that sense of support of the presence of life in its larger and its broader sense is it can speak to us. It can speak to us in a way that cuts through some of the the habitual ways of thinking that leave a sense of disconnection, of isolation, of separateness. That really aches at the core, aches at the core of one's heart when it's not been fully seen and attended to, and so directing turning our attention to the world around us is a from my perspective, an essential part of spiritual practice, and it's been commented on others before myself that it's perhaps not a coin or it it's not something that the Buddha spoke of to a great degree, but on the other hand the Buddha lived in the wilderness and nature in the forests and the trees. And he spoke often of going to practice. He didn't say, go and find yourself a nice air conditioned room where nobody makes any noise and um you can be sure it will be, you know, very peaceful. He said, go and sit at the foot of a tree. There are these roots of trees. He said there are these caves and there are these rocks and hillsides. Go and practice there. That was the invitation. And his life and his practice and his teaching, for the most part, took place outside. And I notice for myself that when I spend time outside or when I take groups, as I sometimes do and really enjoy to do, to practice not inside it a hall or a house or a room or a building but outdoors in the natural environment that something very different different, and very powerful and beautiful comes through in people's experience. And it's to do with both the way the world stretches us and the way it holds us at the same time. And in terms of that, that stretching you know it's really easy for our minds to narrow things down and to cut them up and to separate them out because that's what our minds are good at doing, discerning, distinguishing, um, refining subtleties of differentiation. And it's really useful and helpful. It's, you know, it allows us to eat strawberries rather than deadly nightshade, which are also kind of interesting-looking juicy berries. And it's really good to be able to separate that out. So I'm not knocking that capacity. It's just at a simple level. You know, our ancestors had to figure that one out, and they've passed it on to us, so probably we can just go for the strawberries, and we never find a pallet of deadly nightshade in the supermarket. it just, you know, be a bit confusing if we did, wouldn't it? I mean, we're more likely to confuse that with, say, blackcurrants, which are actually quite similar. <laughs> So without knocking that capacity for discernment what it also tends to do is create a condition inside in which discernment starts to become the primary orientation separating things out starts to become the primary orientation and it's equally important that there is an integrative an integrative orientation in our lives where we understand what connects and what holds And so allowing ourselves to be, as it were, exposed to the natural world is something really powerful. We've, on regular occasions, encouraged in our suggestion for practice to go outside and walk outside. Because there's something that can happen there. And for me, I like to, (laughs) when the night is clear which does happen, I remember, sometimes, to go and look out at the stars, and I'm sure many of you will at times have enjoyed that likewise, and to notice what it's like if we go and just stand and look into the open sky on a clear night. And here in Devon and other places, we may know, where there's not so much sort of urban light sort of activity going on, we can see the vastness. And sometimes if we just stop for a moment, we can have a sense that the vastness of what's there takes us beyond, just a little beyond our ideas of sort of the central importance of ourself or the sort of the complications and confusions of our life. And it's like in one sense we're tiny and insignificant in the face of the vastness of the sky and the universe, the cosmos. And in another sense, if we let ourselves recognize and feel that we are part of this that is vast, that is beyond the mind's ability to gather it in, there's something uplifting, there's something quite exhilarating, something quite wonderful about that. And we also start to feel perhaps the remarkableness of what's happening. Because what's happening here is remarkable. Don't let anyone ever convince you otherwise, including yourself. What's happening here is remarkable. And just imagine, now it's sometimes really useful to just reframe our habitual perceptions a little. So one practice that can be really both lovely and potent is to lie down on the earth under a clear open sky. and Just look up, and you can imagine this. You, you've got a sense of what that might be like, I imagine. Just imagine you're looking, and there is that vast black panorama of space with these little twinkling spots you know, here and there, of which there are quite a few, but there's actually a lot of that black stuff as well. And then just imagine if you were to just shift your perception, rather than imagining that you're lying on, and you can just do this maybe if you like to just imagine this, rather than that you're lying somehow on top of the earth, looking up at all of that, you would actually correct your perception to realise that in fact you're just hanging off the bottom, looking down <laughs> into this vast empty space. And from where I come, New Zealand, this where we are here, this is the bottom. So I'm not making this up. This is the bottom. You can get a map that shows it that way. So it must be so. And just imagine what that's like to suddenly realize that you are suspended over this vast cosmos, which is mostly full of absolutely nothing. And by some remarkable good fortune, we don't fall off. (laughs) Really, remarkable good fortune. We don't fall off. Only thing keeping us here is gravity. Which we kind of take for granted. The fact that basically, if we make the science into simple language, things seem to stick to each other. That's all it's really about. Somehow attract each other. Connect with each other. But somehow we don't fall off. Just notice what... if. There may not be any sense or effect you get from that, that sort of imagining that scenario. But what I notice is that something kind of opens up, even just imagining that, let alone being there and realizing that we are, in fact, suspended here, connected to this earth and suspended above all of this that we call the vastness of the cosmos. Allowing ourselves to be stretched. Like, don't try to think that one out or argue with it, because I'm not trying to say this is something you have to prove or believe, but just notice what the sense of it might evoke for you. In practice, in being here on a retreat, we start to notice the sensitivity, and we've t- talked about that. And this morning I mentioned that we, you know, sometimes notice a quality of contact that speaks to us. And I know, because people again and again report this kind of experience, I know this isn't a rare event or something that just happens occasionally to someone. That sometimes, somehow, in a way we can't quite explain, we feel a sense of resonance, of touch, of impact, of. And again, the language is of being touched by something. It's like something that we see, that we hear, that we perceive in some way, speaks to us beyond the bare thing that it is, that might be just a, a small creature wriggling along the path, or just a view of the landscape through the clouds that part for a few moments. And just something in us vibrates. And it's like something of that which we've perceived, which is out there, has touched us really deeply in here. In a way that is telling us that the out there and the in here, there isn't a boundary between them. There isn't a separation that cuts off the in here from the out there. Even though there may be skin, the skin We actually know it's full of holes, porous. Water gets in and out sometimes. Certainly other things too. And yet it's not even just about the physicality of it. It's like the sense of our innermostness can be affected profoundly, sweetly, sometimes poignantly. And what's that saying about the innerness and the outerness of things? If they touch each other so directly the sense of wonder that can come, a sense of connection that can be that can speak to us in those moments. There's a way in which there's an or there's an understanding that's being offered in this. That isn't an understanding that always makes sense to our mind. But that addresses the habitually held position of otherness that we so hold to. Of otherness that I am other than, different than, apart from. Because we are not, in any ultimate or meaningful way, separate from all this that we are in the midst of, immersed in, we could say. And sometimes, what that allows for us and people, I've I've spoken with with some of you about this on the retreat, or you've spoken with me about it actually, which is really I always am very touched when I hear the sense of this understanding unfolding. How? As we expand from the the very tightly held and contracted sense of locatedness that's defined and confined by the physicality of the body or by the, the tightness of the views of the mind, of me and other, of this and that, of self and what is not. When, we, when we're not so in that, that sometimes there's a sense of expansion, of opening, of extension, that the things that are hard to bear in life, that are challenging, that we've touched on and spoken about and shared with each other in different ways, these things seem unbearable to us when we're referring to a very limited and contracted sense of what we imagine ourselves to be. As if they're almost too big for us to handle. And in fact, they're too big for that sense of limited, separated, held-backness to handle. It's true. And part of what is called for is is actually that we open up. That we allow what it is we're asked to hold. To rest in something larger than what we have imagined to be all that we are. so that there is a way in which the things that are too much for us have the effect of opening us up to what it is that they're truly resting in ajahn Buddhadasa, who is the teacher of one of my teachers one of my early teachers and He was a great and much-loved teacher uh, and practitioner in Thailand in the 20th century. Ajahn Buddhadasa was once asked, how did he work with those people who came to him with really deep emotional pain and distress? And his response was simple, he said, and he, 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 he lived and practiced in the forest, he said, I send them out into the forest, into the nature, the natural environment. And I leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. Something very simple and yet profound in that teaching and that practice. To leave ourselves in the midst of all of this. That's what we're doing here. We talk about leaving ourselves alone. We're also leaving ourselves here where we are. Until we realize that we are part of this. That we are not different than all that is around us. And there's a kind of a... there's a holding that comes in that for us. That's quite remarkable. I was once uh, teaching a retreat, camping on a um, small hill in the foothills of the Pyrenees in France. And there was a, a woman on the retreat who was experiencing deep grief and distress about the accidental death of a dear friend of hers not that long ago, just a few months prior. And she just couldn't bear the tragedy of the loss of her friend and the ending of his young life, and and just how it had just seemed, just an accident, a cruel thing that happened. And just, it was really, it seemed like tearing her heart apart again and again, and she was grieving in so many ways. And she said one day after we'd been there about six, five, six days, similar lengths to... What we've been here. She was walking amongst the trees. There was these little sort of sort of stunted oak trees that grow on this particular part of the Pyrenees, the foothills of the Pyrenees. And it just suddenly occurred to her, without really quite having thought about it too much, to to wonder. She she suddenly realized. I wonder how do the trees feel about the fact that Kai has died, and that friend's name was Kai, and uh, and she said. And I realised completely, without question, that they too were sad. And something in her heart just softened and opened in that realisation. And she spoke about that, just with tears of joy, when she shared the experience. And, you know, one could, well, you know, it sounds like a bit of projection going on there. You know, trees were sad, they didn't even know. Well, maybe. But in a way, that's an expression of seeing that something larger than herself knows that Kai has died and sorrows for that. That something larger, and we can call that the trees, we can call that life, feels and knows and is touched. And we are part of that feeling, part of that knowing, part of that being touched, but part of it, not apart from it part of it. And so there's a there's a in a way a question to invite into our hearts. What might happen for us if we were to not hold on to that sense of apartness so tightly? It gives us a certain security and an imaginary sense of safety or solidity or Or a sense of of meanness, overhearness that we, we feel compelled at times to protect, to defend. And yet somehow the cost of holding ourselves apart, if we really look into it, it's not worth what we get from it. And there's a suffering in it because it's fundamentally not true. And all suffering ultimately comes down to taking a position that is out of harmony, that is not in alignment with what is true. Whether the surface and sort of, in a way, more maybe obvious sufferings that we've spoken about of where we contend with and seek to struggle, to resist the way things are in so many forms, so many expressions, we do this. And that's a a kind of a a non-alignment with how things are. But when we hold a view, a belief, a position and often not even consciously, but when we hold a position that is not in alignment with what is true, this is where suffering comes from. This is actually what leads to the forms of behavior and activity that cause the pain, the suffering, the conflict that we experience and that the world experiences. And all within it at times are subject to this. So the, the process of meditation, of insight, is, is like allowing ourselves to come in contact with, to uncover the positions that we're holding, that maybe we need to question, that maybe we need to reconsider, without somehow having to convince ourselves of a different position, to say that I am now what I was not. It's not about trying to take another position, but just leave the space open for a different quality, of a different kind of knowing that is something that comes much more from the cells of our life from the from the quietly spoken sensitivities of our heart than from the sort of the, the rational organized information systems that we you know operate out of much of the time seeing these this body this mind you know it's made of the same stuff. It's made of the same stuff as everything around it. Earth and air and fire and water and space. The, the elemental nature of things. we, Solidity, warmth, cohesiveness, fluidity, absence. That's what we find if we look in here, isn't it? If we don't think in terms of concepts but we feel, what do we notice? Firmness, hardness, that's Earth. Solidity—that's earth. We feel warmth or coolness; it's temperature. We feel cohesion—a sense of it sort of somehow it's gathered together—and that's water. And if you wonder why does water represent cohesion, see what happens to a pile of flour or dust if you add water to it. It becomes earth or becomes dough. And if you take the water out of this, it's again a pile of dust. So there's that sense of cohesion, of collected, gatheredness, and there's movement. It's wind, wind energy, movement. We feel things change, shift, and ripple in our experience, and this dynamic of movement, of change, is one of the primary things we attune ourselves to. Seeing the fluidity of life, and equally, space, the absences, the you know, body is mostly space. In fact, you know, we know now that the very cells and atoms are full of space. And beyond the very atoms at the subatomic level, it's not even something there. It's just sort of energy going blip, 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 blip really quickly, fast enough to fool us into thinking it's solid. (laughs) But actually, it's mostly space, and the thing that isn't space is hardly ever there. (laughs) And so, so what's inside us is all around us. What's around us is all inside us at that level, just as we're touched by things that come in. And we touch the world every time we place our foot on the earth, every time we express a word, an action, a thought even. And we, in this tradition, we, we take care with those words, with those actions. And equally, we learn to take care with those thoughts, understanding that not only do they form our inner world, but they actually form the outer world as well, and that they touch it, they impact it, and they affect it. This affectability of things is more fundamentally true than any sense of being separate, which would suggest if we were separate, we couldn't be affected. That's what separation suggests, that we're not affected, we're not intertwined in the conditionality and the affectability of all things, including ourselves. And what that also speaks to is the transformative capacity, the affectedness that we cannot affect in terms of affecting things. Ah, let's not worry about that. Um, you know what I mean, by the way, I'm using the word affected. Um that that speaks also to the transformative, that we can be transformed and that we actually transform the world and the world transforms us in this process. And so this this transformation we start to see comes out of something that's happening. It's not something we're doing. It's something we're allowing ourselves to tune into and at a, a certain level, you know, we see we're not different than the elements around us as I said earth and air, fire and water and space and all the things that are formed out of this that just for a little while take that shape and then return back to the earth to the ashes to the water to the air to the space these forms take shape and dissolve and if we could step back at a camera that could just show us what happened for the last thousand years just here and the next just 50 or 60, just here maybe, we'd see all these things just arise and dissolve. If we could see our life in a time-lapse photography from conception to 50 years after our death, we'd see an arising and a dissolving of a form. All things are of this nature. And yet, when we see it like that, we realize that Like waves on the ocean, they're expressing something into form that isn't defined or confined to just the form it takes. It expresses something, but it is not defined by it. And just as waves are not separate from the ocean, so too we are not separate from the life that lives in and through the space that we equally live in and through. And just as our body breathes itself, just as the digestion takes these raw materials, we put them on our plate, we put them in, do we think about, do we reflect about this? You know, those things that not that long ago were in the earth, were earth itself, that get drawn out somewhat remarkably if you think about it by plants that grow out of that earth, just directly out of it, into beans and rice and tofu (laughs) and salad. And then we take them on a plate and we stick them into this. And it becomes this. It does, it really does. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it does. It becomes this. And then a little while later, some of it goes back to the earth. And hopefully quite some time later, the rest of it will too. But some of it does so pretty quickly. And it's like, oh yeah, this is going on all the time. All the time. We're breathing it in, breathing it out, taking it in, letting it out. It's going on. And it's not like there's somewhere inside us that we are that's separate from all of that. It's No, it's going right through the middle. The bit that's most on the inside is where all that stuff's going through. (laughs) So how can we say that somehow, you know, outside is over there. Inside's in here. It's not really like that. And all that is just happening. It's just expressing itself, unfolding. When we stop, when we start to allow ourselves to be perhaps amused, perhaps bemused, certainly a little perplexed, might be an appropriate response. To think we know what exactly is going on, you know, that's a little strange, isn't it? To be a little perplexed is rather healthy. In fact, uh, I I think Voltaire, I think it was Voltaire, anyway, some philosopher once said, Uncertainty, doubt, is indeed an uncomfortable condition, but certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. (laughs) Like fundamentally, (coughs) knowledge does not bring certainty. It just brings ways of looking. And in that way, useful. But to allow ourselves to not assume we know what it is that we're here for, that we're looking for, or that we're lacking... To not form such a firm sense of who I am or what all this is about what we might notice as we as we practice and we we start to see the things that come and go we start to see the things that come and go and we notice that well actually there aren't any things that aren't coming and going and that no matter what it is we turn to as we've reflected on together they arise and they pass. And it starts to occur to us that amongst these things that come and go, there isn't anything that's going to be able to give me lasting satisfaction that I can make some kind of permanent home in, not some situation around me, not some condition of my body, not some experience of my heart or perception in my mind. All these things are coming and going and coming and going, and they just keep doing it. It's like the experience, life, just pours through. The space it's pouring through, and we start off just trying to focus on a little bit of it to sort of steady ourselves in the midst of the, in a way the torrent of life pouring through. Because otherwise we get washed away and feel like we're tumbling and confused, or you know we're going under and um, sort of anxious, scared. But we start to steady. We realize, oh, actually we can orient ourselves in a certain way, so we're not getting washed away here. We're not getting overwhelmed, but nor are we having to resist it. We're just letting it, and you know, it pours through life sound smell taste touch thought feeling it's pouring through it's doing it right now it's been doing it ever since we were here to notice and it will keep doing it it will keep doing it. so that it's like it's not that there's somewhere here we can stop and land and take hold of and that the idea that we often carry is again an unquestioned assumption that there's a something in all of this that I'm supposed to get or find or make or have or organize or fix that will be the resolution, that will be the completion, that will be the, the liberation. It's not really like that. that. That kind of attitude, that kind of orientation comes out of a, a way in which we have conceived or imagined what is true mistakenly. And what, at some level, we conceive or imagine, without necessarily even having the thought, we imagine that somehow something is missing or wrong, or that we are somehow distant from, apart from, separate, or lost, incomplete, in relationship to that which we long for, we yearn for, we seek for, we wish for, we need, we love, we treasure and that the effect of that belief when unseen or unquestioned is a movement is a is a sense of a pressure of looking for of seeking after of trying to find to gather in to collect to gather to get to hold whatever it is that we hope or imagine will fulfill will satisfy will provide the lasting conclusion completion fulfillment of our happiness our well-being our peace our freedom And it's like we have this orientation that's kind of looking at all the things that are coming in life or going, wondering, is this configuration going to be the one that does it for me? And if it is, how will I keep it? How will I get it? How will I keep it? But we can't. We just can't do that. And so to question this this very sense that something's missing, to question the sense that something's missing, Quite a number of years ago, Catherine and I were, were living in a. You might not know, Catherine and I were married. I'm very lucky. Um, but uh, we were living together uh, in a house of a friend's that we were staying in for a few months while they were away. And that's actually not relevant to the story, but somehow it's always part of it. And after we'd eaten our evening meal, I, I was washing up, and the phone rang. So I left the dishes and went to answer the phone, and I was just speaking on the phone to a friend. And I hadn't been that long married at that time, and I would often just sort of put my fingers on my wedding ring and just sort of play with it and just sort of feel this funny thing on my finger. And uh, this time, when I was on the phone, I, I reached and put my hand there, and I suddenly felt that it was missing. It was gone. And it was like immediately my heart leapt, and I was like, oh, "Oh no!" And I called out to Catherine, "Don't tip the dishwater out." <laughs> and I finished the phone call, and we came and looked, and I was saying, "I've lost my ring. I've lost my ring." where is it? We looked in the dish, what it wasn't there, looked around the house, and I could feel the shiny, soft, tender skin underneath where it was missing from. It was, it was like this vulnerable place. It was like I was hurting there because it was gone. And, and, and I was looking at it thinking, where's it gone? Where's it gone? And after a little while, we were looking around the house. I was getting more and more anxious and agitated. Catherine looked at me. She said, she said to me, it's the other hand. <laughs> This is a true story. And it was there all along. And somehow, because I was so sure it was gone, and I was looking where it was missing and feeling the bit where it was missing and it has never been on that finger ever in my life. <laughs> oh, maybe once or twice, but not long enough to leave a mark. And there was this whole deep sense of loss and grief that just, poof, dissolved, Gone. So this movement, the sense we have of something missing, something lost, it's because we're looking essentially in the wrong direction. And if we're looking into the world of things that come and go, we will never find the fulfillment, the conclusion, the resolution of that searching. Because as long as we keep looking in that way, we're subtly reinforcing the belief that something is missing or lost or gone, that we need to rediscover or find that somehow we are we've become alienated from our birthright or lost to it. And so we're asked to to really be giving less not significance or importance, but giving less of the sense that this might be the thing that does it for me to the things we encounter, to the situations outside and inside, whether jobs, people, circumstances, or whether states of mind, feelings, experiences even, which can be wonderful, remarkable at times, and equally challenging and difficult, tender, and equally neutral and boring, all these things, just to let them touch us as they do, and yet start to be curious about what it is that's happening That all of these things are known, revealed, experienced, right now. I mean, what's happening right here? If we come right down to it, there's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought. These are the six realms of experience that we can recognize. Everything we have ever experienced in our life is one of these. Sight, smell, taste, touch, sound. And thought, you were checking, that's great. Everything we ever experience in our life will be one of these. In the end, they are not so different from each other. There isn't necessarily a configuration of them that's so much different than another one. Really. Really. We might think that there is, but you know, everybody else has got a really different one of them, version of them, and they also seem to think that there's going to be a different or a better one too. It's a bit like that one about, you know, my life would have been really different if I'd had a different sort of situation when I was young, and it's true, it would have. But everybody else didn't have that same situation. They had their one, and they too feel that way about it often. It's like all of us, we have the particular conditions and there are the particular conditions and we need to honor those. And we're interested here in understanding that which is not defined by conditions, is not dependent upon conditions, and yet is revealed in the very midst of the conditions and is not apart from all of that which is conditioned. So if we see that kind of compelling urge to engage with all these things, to, to get them, to have them, to sort them, to fix them. And of course, the idea of me is just another one of those things. It's remarkable. The thoughts we have are just one of the things that we have, including the thought that says it's me having all the thoughts. That's just one of the thoughts. It really is. Or it's me that wants all those thoughts to go away. Well, that's just another one of those thoughts that want you want to go away. What about if that one went away? Suddenly the thoughts, all the other ones would be still there and they wouldn't be a problem, would they? (laughs) If those two thoughts went away, the one that thinks it's my thoughts and the one that thinks thoughts are a problem, all the other thoughts would be having a great time. (laughs) So it's not about the thoughts. It's not about the thoughts in the end. But starting to see that we pick them up. And when we pick them up, it's a bit like we tend to see what comes forward and we don't see what's behind it as if again you know the image of looking at the night sky what do we think when we look up there what we think we see is all the stars the spots of light and we even make them into constellations we see images there's the you know the 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 great dipper or the the north star or whatever's there or you know, if you've ever seen Scorpio, it's amazing. It's a Southern Hemisphere constellation. Sorry, I don't mean to go on about the Southern Hemisphere, but I miss it. You know, Scorpio. It actually looks like a scorpion. It's not. You have to imagine it. It's quite a <laughs> remarkable thing. But the point of it is, and here you can see, I'm even attached to it. What's up there is a bunch of spots of light, and mostly it's just darkness. But what we attracted to is to make something out of it, and yet we couldn't see any of it wouldn 't make it wouldn 't show us any image at all if it wasn 't for the background, the blackness, and yet we don 't somehow pick that out we don 't see that is what 's revealing the stars, the um, constellations, the shapes, and the forms that seem to be what touches us you know we don 't ever say you know well yeah, I was born under you know rather than whichever sign we were born under I was born under the Just the empty black stuff. (laughs) Because the odds are that's what we were under. (laughs) You know, if you pack all the spots of light together, just a little, you know, penny in the corner, that's all of them. Mm -hmm. The rest of it's (laughs) that. So, this tendency to pick things out and not see the background is something to reflect on, to consider. Like if we go to watch a movie, you know what happens when you go to watch a movie? very carefully constructed replica of what happens inside us, which is why they're really popular. And what happens is we go into a space and there's some colours projected onto a screen. You know, colours? We know what they are, don't we? Colours. And there's some vibrations happening in the air. Call them sounds. Now, between the colours and the sounds, we have a sense that suddenly these colours are doing something. And actually these colours are the good colours and those colours are the bad colours. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed this ever happened to you in a movie? And we get really concerned about the good colours because the bad colours are after them. Yeah? But because it's a movie, you know, eventually, fortunately, the good colours win out, you know, and the bad colours are defeated and the good colours meet some other quite cute-looking good colours and they go off together. <laughs> and it's like, you know, we just feel so happy. But what's actually happened is that there's been all this colour projected onto a screen, a blank white surface. Yeah? We know this. Now, if someone kept saying, Oi, there's a whole lot of colours on the screen, we'd say, shut up. You're just spoiling the movie. I want to be excited or anxious or afraid and hopefully ultimately relieved. I want that. I'm paying good money for it. I travelled a long way to watch this. Now, if we could see the screen, it would already feel a little bit different, wouldn't it? We'd say, oh, it's colors on a screen. They try and make the colors the same size as the screen so you don't notice it. If you have the edges around it, you know how annoying that is? Flickery bits around the edges. Or if the picture is projected slightly onto the curtains and you see, oh, there's a curtain there. (laughs) How annoying, yeah? Because it takes away from our ability to believe what's happening. And you know, we couldn't see any of the movie without the screen. But for the movie to work, we have to not see the screen. Hmm? Otherwise it just doesn't work. So when we're dealing with this experience of sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, thought, when we're encountering this flow, this stream, this movement of life, which is what it is. It's a movement. It's a flow. It's it's what life expresses itself as to all of us constantly, ongoingly. When we're experiencing this, the tendency is to focus on all of that. It's like focusing on the colors. And yet the fact that it's being noticed, known, seen, recognized, however we language this, whatever it is that somehow there's a knowing, there's an awareness, there's a presence of and with this experience, which we can't actually see because it's not something, but it's what's happening. If anything, it's a verb rather than a noun. It's not something, but it's happening. And what's happening is that we're conscious. We're awake. This wakeful, conscious presence is happening. Constantly. If it wasn't, nothing else would be seen or heard or smelled or tasted or touched or thought. It just wouldn't be, that wouldn't go on. And yet we don't notice that. We somehow take it for granted. We must don't want it to be pointed out because it would take away from the Meaning we've invested in the images, the stories, the pictures, effectively the colors on the screen of the movie. And we'd see them for what they are. Which is something that's just flowing and maybe expressing a pattern or a principle. Something beautiful, indeed, can be. Or something lovely. Something we can learn from, for sure. But not something that ultimately exists apart from the medium in which it's revealed. (coughs) To allow ourselves to rest in this, that is, that is just, that is a, it's like, to so fully be here that there isn't somewhere else. If we're fully here, there isn't somewhere else. That's what we love about being here. We don't think or necessarily know that's what we love about it. But when we land here and we notice there's a something about, ah, yeah, it's actually there's a unifying, a unitary nature to the experience of being fully here. Because by if we're only partly here, then part of us is somewhere else, and there's a fragmentation and a separation. When we're fully here, there isn't somewhere else. There just isn't. We might think about it afterwards, but there isn't in the experience somewhere else when we're fully here. And when we're simply and completely, wholeheartedly being this that is, there isn't something else either. There isn't, there's just this. There isn't something else. There's not something watching it. There's not something being watched by it. There isn't something to watch even. There's just this. And I'm using watching and being watched as a metaphor there. It's not just in terms of visual consciousness. But any of the sensory fields, it's the same. It's just this. And there isn't something else. Or somewhere else. And that there's a unitary nature to the fundamental experience of what it means to be. To be alive, to be awake, but just to be. And it's this. It's not something other or somewhere else. Nothing that we ever do in terms of a movement towards or seeking after or trying to get will get us any closer to this. And that might be a bit of a frustrating disappointment, But by compensation and by way of relief, nothing we ever do will actually take us away from it either. It's an orientation. So long as we're being drawn out, we can't fully see. But when we turn, and it's not as if we even turn, it's that we relinquish the, the urge to go out looking for something else, somewhere else to be someone else, to have something else, whatever. When that drops back in on itself, when we let go of that movement, or it lets go of us, we find ourselves right where we are. And this is that. And this is the fulfillment and the release of the human heart simultaneously. The fulfillment and the release of our life. T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets put it like this. We will not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Rumi put it this way. He says, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. So let's sit here together right now. There is nowhere else to be. So may we all in our practice and in our lives come to to deeply know our profound interconnectedness, our inseparableness from all things around us. And may we also and deeply come to rest in in the truth of what is right here, Right now, life's immediacy, peace and freedom for our own well-being and liberation, for the welfare and the liberation of all beings.